Father God, you are sovereign. Your goodwill and your good plan is beyond understanding, Lord, and we trust in you. We thank you for our brother Sam who's coming today, Lord, to share with us a message that you've already prepared that before the foundations of the earth, you knew we would be here this day to hear. Lord, because there was nothing that is by chance or by accident in your plan or purpose. Lord, so everyone who is hearing this is hearing it for a reason. Those who are here, those who are listening online, and as I was reminded recently, the many who will listen to it in the future through the podcast, Lord, all these, these people, hearts, Lord, you have prepared for this message. So Lord, I, I pray you would speak to us through it now, through your spirit within each of us, Prompt us, Lord, into, into movement, into change, Lord, by your word. And we know that your word does not come back void. Our brother Sam, Lord, who's prepared these past few weeks for this, Lord, um, calm his spirit. Let him know that you are with him, that you have prepared him and guided him into the words you have him say. Lord, that your, your words will now speak through him, Lord, and give him great assurance in that, to know that you are good. And, uh, Lord, that you will be glorified through this. And in of all this, we pray simply that for your glory today. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, family. With God is my hope, let's continue to worship the Lord through the reading of his word in Psalm chapter 30. Let's begin with the title, where it says, A Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from amongst those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord. O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As you can see in the title of our psalm, the penman of our text this morning is David, the ancient king of Israel. In the opening words here, the speaker says that he will extol the Lord. Now, what does it mean to extol? It means to lift high, 
to praise, to worship. Why is the speaker here praising God? Because he has experienced an amazing and great deliverance. Being brought back from the brink of death, from the depths of Sheol, which is the grave, the land of the dead, awaiting judgment. As many of you all here know me well, I'm fairly similar to Joel and how he explained himself last week. Very logically minded. Premise one flows into premise two equals conclusion, breaking down language and grammar kind of mind. However, I'm going to go a different direction this morning. First off, by asking you, church, even though David is the penman, who is the speaker of this song? I know that many of you are thinking or saying to yourselves, he just said, it's David. David is, uh, it's David, of course. It says it right there in the title, a psalm of David. But the real, question, uh, real answer to the question is, it's a trick question. David is one speaker in this psalm out of three. We'll find more about these other two speakers in just a moment, but let's start off with David. Let's really start by looking at this title for a moment as it sets the historical backdrop for us. There is a lot of controversy surrounding this title amongst scholars, especially in the modern translations like the English Standard Version, where it says that it is a song at the dedication of the temple. If you'll recall with me, David was not present, let alone alive, in and in charge of the construction of the temple, nor its dedication when it was completed. The Lord gave that responsibility to Solomon, his son, after he died. Some say that it was written by David, later to be used at its dedication, or the title was added later by another scribe under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, after it was used at the temple's dedication. In most older translations, like the King James, however, they render it at the dedication of the house of David, which many take to mean after he had become king of Israel, overtook Jerusalem, and built up his palace, dedicating his victory, throne, and new home to the Lord. Some believe that it was later in his life after he was restored to his throne after the attempted mutiny and overthrow of his son, Absalom. Either way, it is about the construction and dedication unto the Lord of some structure of some kind. David wrote this song to sing of the Lord's great redeeming work, saving him from the hands of his enemies. If any person besides Christ himself was plagued with enemies that continuously sought to kill him, it was David. Throughout his life, he fought to defend his sheep from lions and bears. He at different points in his life battled against and ran away from Philistines and other Canaanite pagans. King Saul and his men sought to put him to death numerous times, and as I said already, his own son, Absalom, attempted to kill him. His life always seemed to be marked by this sense of danger. Yet David worships the Lord here because none of his enemies throughout his life prevailed against him. In the midst of hiding in caves from these men that sought to kill him, he cried out to the Lord to save him, and the Lord heard and answered his cries. If you look at the language of the first three verses, there is a common theme and a form of attribution that flows through them. You have is stated three times. You have drawn me up. You have healed me. You have brought, me, uh, brought up my soul from Sheol. You have. You have. You have. And if we look at David's life, we see that all that he has, his kingdom, his wealth, Everything is supplied by the strength of God. 2 Samuel supplies us with many explicit confirmations of this fact. 2 Samuel 5.10 tells us that David went on and grew great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. 
Verse 12 of that same chapter says, David had perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel. And then now moving on to chapter 8, verse 14, where it says, And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all of Edom he put garrisons, and they of Edom became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David whatsoever he went. Now tell me, does this knowledge of God's mercy and grace in his life reflect the words of verse 6? No. It sounds like a proud man who's leaning on his own strength and behaving as if he gained and could sustain his wealth on his own. He had elevated himself to a position that was above his pay grade. If we look at all the other kingdoms of the ancient Near East and study the history, we would find many rulers and kings that called themselves gods, claiming to have authority over not merely the physical kingdoms of the earth, but of the heavens as well, through divine status and right. Though not explicitly saying this, David was assuming a similar mentality. As if he had attained eternal wealth and status, and what was the result? The Father hid his face from him, which is a sign of judgment. The Lord shining his face upon his people is a sign of grace and love, and turning his face means removing his grace and favor. So in essence, the Lord was saying to David, if you think that your own power and might is the source of your good fortune, then think again. And he brought the mighty king, the most powerful man on earth at the time, to his knees, begging for mercy. O Lord, be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. And the Lord raised him up from the depths of the grave. He brought about a resurrection, if you will, and restored his favor, that David might sing his praises and be thankful once more for the Lord's grace, for he is mighty to save. And this leads me to our second speaker in the text. As we come to this speaker, it truly flips the meaning of the text for us. For this speaker is the greater David himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me preface prior to coming to the text in his voice with a few things. As Joel mentioned in his sermon last week, John 1 refers to Christ as the Word. The term in the original Greek for word is logos. This word is so heavily packed with so much meaning in the history of philosophy and theology that I'm not going to get into it all. However, what is the point of John using this term? When Christ reveals himself to John in Revelation chapter 1 and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Do you know what he's saying there? He's not merely speaking about how within himself he contains the fullness of time. But Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is referring to himself as the fullness of revelation, which we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where it tells us that in the former times the Lord spoke to us through his prophets, but in these last days speaks to us through his Son. Or in Luke chapter 24, after our Lord was resurrected, he revealed himself on various occasions to many disciples and revealed to them not only himself and his resurrected body, but also showed them himself in his pre-incarnate state. He walked them through the writings of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, and showed them how they are all about him. He is the very words of the Father spoken at the creation event, where he spoke and it was. When God reveals himself to his people, he does so through dialogue, dialogos, through his Son. He is the very substance and reality of every letter every verse, every chapter, every book of Scripture, the Alpha and the Omega. 
So when we come to the Holy Scriptures, we cannot come to them as just any other book. Coming back to our passage this morning, hear the very Son of God, now incarnate, speaking to you, a divine to human encounter. When we understand this passage is speaking from the first person perspective of Christ, it quickly becomes apparent that this is an intra-Trinitarian prayer, a song of praise from the eternal Son to the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. The Father hid his face from the incarnate Son and poured out his wrath upon him, but the Lord's anger is only for a moment. For though there was great sorrow in the crucifixion of our Savior, that is not the end of the story. No. Death did not have the last laugh. For in, this, in the glorious morning of the third day, the stone was rolled away and death was defeated. For Christ arose as the firstborn of the dead. The Father drew him up from Sheol. But why? Why did he do this? Look at verses 8 and 9. Knowing the full weight of what he was to endure in Matthew 26, Christ came before the Father, fell on his face and said, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now keep that in mind and think of these questions in verse 9. Beginning with, What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? The King James says, What profit is there in my blood? While reading this from the perspective of David, the answer is nothing. But when reading this from the perspective of Christ, the answer is everything. When David asks, will the dust praise you and tell of your faithfulness? The answer is no. But when Christ is the inquirer, the one asking the question, the answer is yes. For man is formed from the dust of Genesis and Psalm 113.7 tells us that the Lord raises us up from the dust and from the dunghill. When He raises us up from the dust through His blood, He does so so that we may sing His praises. So when we read these words from the voice of Christ, let us recall that prayer in Matthew 26 and understand that Christ concludes these questions in the same tone and says, O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And Christ came not only to shed his own blood so that our sins may be atoned for, but he was raised from the depths of Sheol so that we might become partakers in his resurrection as well. And that leads us to our third and final speaker. You. You. The church, the saints, by virtue of our union with Christ, we may participate in this glorious reality. Christ and David even urge us to sing this beautiful psalm along with them in verse 4. And David penned this psalm to be sung by the saints at the dedication of the building referenced in the title. We therefore sing along and receive its blessings. We sing it. And when we do, all the first-person pronouns, I, me, my, all reveal realities that wash over our souls. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ's resurrection ensures our resurrection. It is a future reality already set in stone. Understand that. Though weeping may tarry for the night, beloved, joy 
comes in the morning. It's amazing the kind of resilience one can display when you know that there is rest and comfort waiting for you if you just wait and push on. There was a study done by a psychologist at Johns Hopkins University in the 1950s. It was perverse, but very revealing. He dropped rats into a tank of water and had them swim there. He just left them, and within mere minutes, they drowned. Then he did it again, but instead of leaving them when they were right on the verge of drowning as well, he picked them up for a brief moment and then put them back in. The second round of rats then persevered and survived much longer, kept swimming because they knew that there was rest waiting for them if they kept going. Now, obviously, very clearly, humans are not rats, right? However, there are many stories throughout history of men and women surviving horrific tragedies in their lives because they saw a light at the end of the tunnel and kept their gazes upon achieving rest at the end of their present struggle. As I said, it is a future that is already engraved into the reality of time that we look towards. Remember those three instances of you have within the opening verses of our passage. Do not lose hope. If you lose hope, let me give you one brief reminder by way of our passage that is so easy to skip over. If you actually look at verse 4 again, the second half, it says, and give thanks to his holy name. Now look at every instance of the name and title of our Lord in our passage. This title is capitalized. This is very different from the title of Lord given in instances like Psalm 2.4, which is Adonai in the original language. This is a title ascribed to people in positions of power and authority, such as kings. It is often given to God as well. However, in the instances that we see uh, Lord in all capital letters, it is the name Jehovah. This name is given to God and God alone. It It is his covenant title, a covenant name. We first see this name given to Moses in the account of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, where God tells him that his name is I Am that I Am, saying that he is unchanging, and therefore his promises are unchanging. His covenant is eternal. And when speaking about the Lord Jehovah's actions in his life, the writer of the psalm is appealing to the Lord's covenant name. He is saying, as sure as the Lord is, therefore are his promises. There are some, however, that delight in the darkness. They rebel against the Lord and His covenant. They find comfort in their own wealth and status, like David in verse 6. Yet blinded by the darkness of night, they do not see their wickedness and lack belief in the Lord's judgment, presuming upon His mercy. Never crying out to the Lord in repentance. In their spiritual adultery, they walk, as, they walk this life as ladies of the night. Beloved, examine yourselves and never presume upon His mercy, for the night is only temporary. The morning will come. There is a coming day when all the enemies will be placed underneath Christ's feet as a footstool, where He will deliver the final death blow to His final enemy, death itself. He will nail the coffin shut, never to be resurrected again. For we will be eternally filled with his overabundance of life and immortality. He will not allow our enemies to prevail against us. And may this be a comfort to you, church. 
Because for those in Christ, joy comes in the morning. Sorrow and toil are tourists that dwell in the hearts of saints for a time. But when joy comes, it comes as a permanent resident. And if you just look around you right now, everywhere you look is full of pain and suffering. In our society, which, with much pagan idolatry and apostasy, COVID, spiritual, political, and economic unrest, with abuse by the magistrates overstepping the boundaries of their powers over the people, riots and protests, you name it. Even within our own church body, we've recently experienced a number of deaths and illnesses befall us, as, and, and not just us, but ones that we love. But take heart, for those sorrow may last for the night. Joy comes in the morning. Like a woman experiencing the pains of labor, she is replenished and looks past the pain that she has experienced in but a single moment when she wraps the newborn babe in her arms, knowing that it was all worth it. The fruit of joy that will come and the harvest of the beautiful springs of glory are sown and watered by the tears of sorrow in this life. And as it says in verse 12, it will be an eternal thanksgiving and dancing in the courts of our Redeemer. When Christ returns, there will be no more sun, no more moon, but it will be an eternal daylight by the light shining from his face. Beloved, it may be night for the time being, but the sun will soon break past the horizon. And just as the dawn before the sunrise, you can see the rays break the darkness of the night sky. Throughout this life, we receive glimpses of this eternal joy. And this is the beauty of the eschaton cascading down through the ages of time to meet you and to remind you that joy comes in the morning. Let's pray. Almighty and merciful Lord, we come before you knowing this hopeful expectation, Lord. Knowing the fact that you are sovereign over all time and space and the fact that you have already set in motion things, a trajectory for your church, Lord, a destination for us to achieve, to, to arrive at. And Lord, we are set on this road knowing and expecting to arrive at that destination. We have faith and that faith will one day become sight where we will stand beside Lee and Eileen and other beloved people in our lives that have been members of our church, ones that we have lost, people that we love, that are now delighting in their Savior, awaiting the resurrection. Father, we are excited for this moment to come. We look forward to it. Help us to have faith and to remain steadfast and hold fast to that. And understand the fact that the gospel does not end at death, but it ends with resurrection. And that Christ's resurrection 
ensures our resurrection. It has proven it true. Almighty God, we are thankful. We ask these things in the name of your Son, by the power of your Holy Ghost. Amen.